If you're unsure whether you've ever seen the Samurai, I can assure you that you have. You have seen it either as the 107 minute masterpiece about a stone cold hitman who is compromised when a woman sees him leaving the scene of his latest contract, or you have seen other films that have fallen under the influence of its unique and indelible style and tone. There's 100,000 streets in this city. You don't need to know the route. You give me a time and a place, I give you a five minute window. Anything happens in that five minutes and I'm yours. No matter what. Anything happens a minute either side of that and you're on your own. Do you understand? Written and directed in 1967 by Jean-Pierre Melville, the opening images show us a dark, empty room. Two windows just about bring us the grim light of a rainy day. So grim, it takes us a moment to adjust to how dark and empty the room is. In the meantime, we hear the splashes of passing traffic. A curious, shiny circular object sits between the two windows, and chirping sounds inform us that the shiny object is a birdcage. A line of smoke curls up from the right of the frame, and that alerts us to a man lying on the bed. Without the smoke, we would not know that he was there. Considering his line of work, it is a perfect introduction and summation of his character. There, but not there. Seen, but unnoticed. Hiding in plain sight. He resembles the tiger referred to in the caption that soon appears on the screen. There is no solitude greater than a samurai's. Unless perhaps it is that of a tiger in the jungle. I'm a photographer. Photographia. Sure. Che genere di fotografia? Pictures of architecture, landscape. People? No people. Just for publication for magazines. Magazines. Which magazine? Different ones. Casa uh, editrice. Va bene. You must share a glass of wine with me. Come tonight. Very kind. No. You want to know the truth about Abruzzo? A priest sees everything. The man rises from his bed and dresses. He dons a black suit, white collar and black tie. I mean, everybody panics. Everybody. Things get tense. It's human nature. You panic. I don't care what your name is. You can't help it. Fuck, man. You panic on the inside. In your head, you know? You give yourself a couple of seconds, you get a you get a hold of the situation, you deal with it. What you don't do, you start shooting up the place and start killing people. No, what you're supposed to do is act like a fucking professional. He then puts on his raincoat and finally a fedora, which he wipes the brim of with his forefinger and thumb. Perhaps it's a ritual, a signal to himself that he is prepared for action. Like a warrior checks his armory one final time before stepping out to battle. Or maybe not. Perhaps he just takes pride in his appearance. I wear $150 slacks. I wear silk shirts. I wear $800 suits. I wear a gold watch. I wear a perfect, deep, flawless, three-carat ring. I change cars like other guys change their fucking shoes. He slips out of his apartment onto the streets of Paris, and within seconds, he robs a car that he will use for his next contract. We won't know this for a long time, but his name is Jeff Costello. We never see Costello doing anything other than going to work or coming from work, killing people, avoiding being killed, being questioned by the police, evading the police, and on the few occasions we see him with a woman, it is only to arrange an alibi or confirm that a witness will remain silent. Clearly, Jeff Costello is a man with very few friendships and even fewer attachments. Guy told me one time, 
Don't let yourself get attached to anything you are not willing to walk out on in 30 seconds flat if you feel the heat around the corner. Le Samurai is incredibly lean. Other films about assassins, hitmen or sociopathic killers devote entire opening sequences to establish their routines, the hire, the hit and the collection. Once that practice has been confirmed, it is repeated until it goes wrong and the sudden rupture provides the film with its impetus. Melville doesn't waste time with any of that. The first hire is where the rupture happens. Everything after that has Costello trying to correct it. We're in plan B. Still breathing? Now we gotta make the best of it. Improvise, adapt to the environment, Darwin, shit happens, I Ching, whatever, man. We gotta roll with it. I Ching, what are you talking about, man? You threw a man out of the window. I didn't throw him. He fell. But what did he do to you? What? What did he do to you? Nothing, I only met him that night. You just met him once and you kill him like that? But I should only kill people after I get to know them? Costello's background is never explained. Where he came from and how he came to be is never revealed, let alone discussed. He just is. Yet Melville did not conjure Le Samurai out of thin air. The title immediately cites Japanese cinema, and in particular, the Jidegeki, or period pictures, most famously directed by Akira Kurosawa. However, it is more complicated than that. Firstly, Melville's film is not about seven samurai, but one. Which means, if Melville is directly channeling Jidegeki pictures, they are not of the Ninkyo Ega or chivalric kind. No, Melville will be drawing from the dramas where the samurai are no longer noble warriors, but bitter wolves, such as Sanjuro and Yojimbo. But to be more accurate, it's not to Japan's period pictures that the title is referring. It would be contemporary thrillers such as Kurosawa's High and Low and Seijun Suzuki's Kanto Wanderer, both from 1963, where the men find themselves divided between their sense of giri and ninjo, or duty and humanity. And that split is what Melville forces Costello to face at the end of Le Samurai. But in terms of plot, Melville's initial inspiration came from reading Graham Greene's novel This Gun for Hire. Published in 1936, in 1942, Paramount Pictures turned it into a noir thriller, starring Alan Ladd and Veronica Lake. It's lucky they sent you today. By tonight, this would have been on its way to Washington. That would have been just too bad for your boss now, wouldn't it? Especially the little uh, prescription. I'm even willing to forgive your boss that nasty little word, blackmail. So then, here you are and uh, the money you please. <laughs> Alan Ladd is Philip Raven, an assassin who, double-crossed, turns on his employer. Something similar happens in The Samurai, but that is not the only similarity. Yes, both Costello and Raven are lone wolves, but neither of them are without moments of empathy. In This Gun for Hire, it comes when Raven feeds a stray cat that just materialises on the windowsill of his apartment. It's an obvious trick used by screenwriters Albert Maltz and W. Orr Burnett to soften the edge on someone who the audience would otherwise have found hard to warm to. This Gun for Hire came quite early in the noir cycle, and so it does not benefit from the licorice cynicism that laced later editions such as John Huston's The Asphalt Jungle, Jules Dassin's Night in the City, 
Stanley Kubrick's The Killing, and Don Ziegel's The Lineup. By comparison, Frank Tuttle's This Gun for Hire is cushioned by an optimistic romanticism. Although Le Samurai is anything but optimistic, it most certainly inherited noir's visuals. In fact, Melville's regular director of photography, Henri Decaille, so carefully lit the interiors that it is sometimes hard to discern whether you are watching a black and white movie made in colour or a colour film shot in black and white. That conundrum is repeated in the film's soundtrack. François Durobet's score segues from a title theme that is so far ahead of its time, it wouldn't feel out of place in a 1980s thriller. through to sparse atmospheric tones. Before finally being dominated by modern jazz. the inclusion of jazz is facilitated by having the chief witness to Costello's crime, Valerie, played by Cathy Rosier, as a pianist in the nightclub. Jeff Costello is played by Alain Delon, who would burst onto the scene in 1958 when he starred opposite Romy Schneider in Christina, a frothy costume romance set in turn-of-the-century Vienna. But it was his performance two years later, in Plan Soleil, René Clément's sun-soaked adaptation of Patricia Highsmith's The Talented Mr. Ripley that earned Delon his star status. Brilliantly cast against his matinee idol looks, Delon hid Ripley's motivations behind the most alluring of smiles. Going on to work with such celebrated directors as Lucchino Visconti and Michelangelo Antonioni, by the time Delon was approached by Melville to play the enigmatic assassin, he had swapped the electric smile for a blank stare and as soon as he leaves his apartment in the opening sequence, he has that look down cold. But perhaps Delon had perfected that cold look long before he even took to the screen. Born in 1935 in Sceaux, a suburb south of Paris, Delon's parents' marriage foundered when he was four years old. After that he was sent to a foster home, which happened to neighbour a prison. There, the young Delon spent his time playing with the guards, until both his foster parents were killed at which point Delon returned to his mother. After that, he was moved through school after school, constantly getting into trouble with the authorities, and even as a star, he could never shake his ties to the criminal underworld. In 1968, he was placed under investigation in relation to the murder of his former bodyguard, Stephen Markovitz. Markovitz's body had been found in a dumpster on the outskirts of Paris, and the police were pointed in Delon's direction by Markovitz's brother Alexander, who came forward with a letter in which Stephen had written, If I get killed, it's 100% the fault of Alain Delon and his godfather, François Marcantoni. Who was François Marcantoni? None other than a well-known Corsican gangster. Qui êtes-vous? Aucune importance. Que voulez-vous? Vous tuez. The brilliant thing about Dolan's performance is that not once does he seek our sympathy. If anything, he seems indifferent to our gazing upon him. But that hardly explains the presence of the chirping bird he keeps in his apartment, 
did Melville include it, not just as another nod to this gun for hire, but also to soften Costello's hard edge? No, this is a Jean-Pierre Melville film, and there was never anything sentimental about his work. Nothing, absolutely nothing in this film is extraneous. So the bird is not just an affectation, or even an indication, of Costello's character. In fact, later in the movie, the bird proves to be utterly indispensable to the plot. That sequence is a sure sign of a great filmmaker. You would think from that sound clip, the scene is just about the bird chirping. But if you were to watch the scene, with the sound turned down, you would think the scene is about something else entirely. In other words, Melville shows us one thing, but the sounds do not directly relate to what we see. So we are being presented with two distinct pieces of information at the same time. And it is only later that we are able to piece together their separate connotations. Upon its release, Le Samurai was promoted as un film policier, or to use the vernacular, un polar. But really, it explores an existential crisis. Costello's purpose in life is to end life, and because of the way he lives his life, it is constantly under threat. Which means, in order to preserve his life, he must take life, which only endangers him all the more. As abject a paradox as you could likely encounter, it is further contradicted when Costello realises there is only one thing he can do in order to escape his conundrum. And then, paradoxically, he chooses not to do it. Mm -hmm. 